The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. just be me, but I'm, I am grateful for what God has been doing this morning. Um, I hope that you have had a good morning so far. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can grab them. You can, uh, you can probably guess where I'm going to ask you to turn, which is 1 Timothy. If you can find your place. Oh yeah, I am so sorry. Kiddos, I messed up. Your leaders are panicking. They, they're ready for you. So if you haven't gotten up there, they're ready to go. They don't even need me anymore. I look back and the whole army is already marching out. Um, listen, the last couple weeks, uh, we have been looking at the biblical qualifications. What does the Bible say about um, biblical leadership in his church? And uh, we have been looking at, and I, I want to say it again up front, that God cares about his church. And along with that, God absolutely cares about the way his church is led and who leads it. And we've been walking through this text, and um, listen, I want to show you where I'm headed today. This morning, we are going to be looking at three questions. We're going to take them one by one. I will admittedly spend a lot more time with the first one than the second two, so don't panic. But we're going to be going through three questions, and... Um, over the last couple of weeks, we've actually started answering this first question, which, which is this. What must an, or who must an elder be? Who must an elder be? This is a really important question uh, because who must an elder be comes before the question of what must an elder do. It's very important. God cares about who leads in his church. So not all church leaders look the same. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, not all have the same temperament, same personality. But listen, they all must share in these qualifications. And we've been looking at them one by one. And so these qualifications push deeper than um, temperament. Our personality. They go deeper than culture, than church size. So whether you're big church, small church, farm town, big city, it doesn't matter. These qualifications are for the leaders of God's church. And so we, um, this morning, get the privilege of looking at the final two. And my goodness, we have covered a lot of ground. So we're going to look at the final two qualifications each of them come with a devil, so that's fun. We're going to deal with that. And um, after we work through these qualifications, after we ask and answer uh, that question, who must an elder be, we're going to move very quickly to our second question, which is what must an elder do? And then lastly, our final question, what's next? Like, where do we go from here after this journey we've been on? So these are the questions we're going to be working through uh, together this morning in that order. And so let's, uh, let's start working through this. And let's start with, our again, our first question. Um, that's what we've covered so far. Uh, that's a lot. 
That's a lot. So we look at this, an elder must aspire to the role, and that's good, and be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-control, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not violent, gentle, not quarrelsome, um, not a lover of money. Um, Actually, I lied. There's more that I didn't even put on this because we saw last week that an elder must also steward and manage his home well. And because faithfulness in the home is an essential requirement for faithfulness as a leader in the church. And then finally, this morning, we arrive at our final two qualifications. So let's look at our verse today. And this is uh, 1 Timothy 3, 6 through 7. God's word says this, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. All right, so we see here our final two qualifications, both a stern warning, both have a devil attached to them. We're going to work through them one by one. Let's look at our first one in verse six, and that is this. An elder must not be a recent convert. Paul says if, an, if, a, if a man steps into this role as a recent convert, there's a high likelihood, high chances, chances are high that he will become puffed up with conceit and pride, which leads to a fall, to fall into the condemnation of the devil. All right? Let's not rush past this. Even big statements here. Um, but I don't know about you. Instantly, so many questions go just all in my mind, like just popcorning in my mind. The biggest one is this, like, what is a recent convert? How do you know? Like, uh, what classifies as recent? I mean, I know what a convert is. What about recent? Um, the word literally means newly planted or freshly planted. It's a vivid imagery. Um, but here's the thing. Paul doesn't quantify this amount, does he? He doesn't say it's, you know, a week. He doesn't say month, year, five years, five plus. He doesn't get into that. He just says recent convert. Church, this has everything to do with spiritual maturity. Paul here is not just talking about your physical age, but spiritual maturity. And, and here's the thing, spiritual maturity and physical chronological age are not necessarily linked. Um, spirit, spiritual maturity is, is often far more difficult to judge like, I can just do math and figure out how old I am. It's not quite that easy when you're talking about spiritual maturity. Um, and this text is absolutely referencing spiritual maturity, not just chronologic, chronological age. And so in other words, you may be 88 years old and be a new convert. You may be 88 and you may be new to your faith. You may be immature in your faith. And at the same time, you could be 28 and um, be mature in your faith. Praise God for his goodness and grace that grips our hearts no matter how old we are when he does it. Praise God for that. 
Pastorally, I have come to see and know that there are times when physical maturity and spiritual maturity are not on the same page. Um, However, there is a truth here that spiritual maturity does take time. It takes time. God works on us, sanctifies us through experience, through time in with him. We grow. It takes time to grow. That's what this is dealing with, with this qualification. Along with that, I want to say one more thing that's really important. This might be something you're like, duh, but I want to say it anyway. Um, Being a recent convert is not a bad thing. Here's the reason I say this. If you look at this whole list here of elder qualifications, um, especially the negative ones, the ones that say elders must not, they're all negative. They're all rough. Like, I mean, um, drunkard, it's not great. Uh, Violent, um, quarrelsome, lover of money. Like, we see all these things. These elders must not be. And then right after that, we hear elders must not be a recent convert. And I don't want you to hear that and think that it's negative. Um, Praise God for recent converts. I pray that we will always have recent converts in our congregation, in our church family. Always. Being a recent convert is not a bad thing. It's an awesome thing. It's a good thing. It is a gift of God. I pray that there are even recent converts who aspire to serve as an elder, like we're talking about this morning. That's awesome. It's good. It is good. It is good. Um, That's a great thing. So as we look at this, here's the thing, though. This qualification deals with spiritual maturity, and yet spiritual maturity can be difficult to define. So I want to ask you, please don't answer this out loud. Um, How do you know if you're a recent convert? Would any of you call yourself a recent convert? Better question is why? On what uh, qualifications are you using to call it? How do you know? So when we ask this question, I think it's, there's a, it's a combination of a few things that help us kind of walk in this and assess this. And the first one's the obvious one, which is self-reflection. Like, am I a recent convert? I think about it. Um, here's the thing, though. That's often uh, probably the least reliable test. Um, sadly, here's the crazy thing. One of the, the most common marks of immaturity is thinking we're more mature than we are. It's like, have you met any 10-year-old who thinks they're ready to drive, right? Same concept. And at the same time, one of the true marks of true maturity is having a more realistic view of our own struggles and our own need for growth, um, Even though that's true, though, there is an aspect of this that is, Lord, search my heart. And I believe that as we come to the Lord, honestly, ask him, you know, what are you doing in my life? If you aspire to be an elder, to ask him truly, um, are there things in me you want want to grow in me first? I I believe, I I believe God will lead us. Self-reflection is important. But you want to know what I have come to believe with all my heart based on scripture and experience, what is far more important. And that's your church community. That's true community with others who know us and who can speak into our lives. To have others who see us, walk with us, and oftentimes 
they can see the immaturity, blind spots that we might have. Now, we have stopped seeing, but they're able to see it. And on the other side of this, how cool is this? At times, when you're in true community, it's your brothers and sisters that are going to look at you and say, I see this in you. You are maturing. They're going to see maturity in you that you don't see in yourself. This is the beauty, one of the most beautiful things about the body of Christ. It takes a village. And I love that. Um, listen, I don't often share um, personal testimonies in, uh, about myself from the pulpit. I do this because you see me enough. You don't need to hear about me. I want to not make it about me. Uh, so I don't typically do that. Um, but as I was praying and thinking through this part of this text, um, I think it might be appropriate to share a little bit about um, just my testimony. Um, and the reason why is because of the way it highlights the way God has used others to do exactly what I just put out before you. Um, I can remember well what it is and was like to aspire to be a leader in the church. I can remember well what it was like to um, aspire to be a pastor, feel called and aspire toward it. I remember what it was like to aspire to be an elder as a, as a younger man. And um, I know I shaved today, so you're probably thinking you are a younger man now, but it's okay. <laughs> I'm just going to call out the elephant in the room so that we can all move on now. Um, if you're new here, just hang with me. I'm back. Okay. Um, and I remember what it was like to want that and to be preparing for that in schools, in seminary, just preparing for what God was doing. But listen, in the first 13 years of ministry in my life, I had the pri privilege of serving on the staff of five different churches as I aspired. I really did. And yet each of those churches, the leadership in each of those churches had enough wisdom to look at me and say, not yet. I didn't like it at the time. They said, not yet. They saw my aspiration. They didn't stop investing in me. They, they allowed me to serve and to lead, and they discipled me. They walked with me. And here's the coolest thing. So that when God did open the door for me to step into a pastoral role, the leaders, friends, and elders in my life that had stood beside me, investing their time and energy and resources, came around me and said, brother, this is good. And um, this is crazy, and I know that I'm going to miss in this count. This is quick math here. But I sat down for just a few minutes and just thought, real quick math, math here, um, and I know I've missed a few, but at least seven churches, at least 12 different pastors, and at least 28 different key influential brothers and sisters, people, leaders, probably many more, invested in me during that season of aspiration. As I aspired, prepared, and matured. How incredible is that? Um, men like, I'm just going to call it like the three most recent, I guess, because um, I, I have memory loss, I guess, but these came to my mind right away. Like men like Bob Rowley, you know, maybe don't know him, but man, he coached me and mentored me. Men like 
Drew Lieber, even, who the church that launched us, who discipled me. Here's the coolest thing. He gave me a seat at the, the, the elder table when I wasn't an elder. He just let me be there so I could see it and, and see what it's like to wear that weight. He opened the door and discipled me as I saw it. Men like John McKenzie, who took the very first chance on me as a young leader to give me an opportunity to serve in a pastoral role. Also, he's the one who looked at me and he said, um, look, I know one day you're going to sit in this chair one day, but today you don't. And he told me, today you get this incredible privilege you'll never have again of soaking up everything, learning, preparing, getting stronger so that when you sit in this chair, you're ready to wear the weight. Praise God for men like that. Praise God for men like that who cared for me as I aspired, as, as I matured. Here's my point in, in, in sharing this. Um, when an opportunity finally came and God was calling us to move back to San Antonio to start the work of planting Stone Oak Bible Church, and as I felt the weight of that decision, their investment in my life is what set me on the path to plant the church. The men who discipled me, the pastors, the friends in my life are the ones who prayed with me said, it's time. I aspired to this, but hear me, not before it was time. And the men around me helped me decipher that and, and that I would walk in God's timing. And I know this is my story and I'm a weirdo in some ways. Um, and I know your story may be totally different, but there's the same underlying points. And that is that there is no amount of zeal or passion, no amount of talent, no amount of ability or knowledge or real world experience that can substitute for spiritual maturity, for real time, time in, walk with Jesus. There's no substitute for that. We can't shortcut that. First Peter 5, um, Peter's talking to the church, talking to the elders in the church and talking about the calling of elders in the church. And uh, look what he says here. Likewise, you who are younger, he says, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you with what? Humility. Hang on to that one. Um, humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Here Peter is saying the very same thing as Paul. There is a huge danger here for a young believer to be promoted too soon to a position of leadership in the church far too early and to think, whoo, look what I just did. Look what I just accomplished. I mean, God might, God's probably pretty impressed. Um, to look, look at my zeal and my passion for leading God's church. It's, it's time to turn this church, it's time to turn this community upside down for Jesus, right? You can feel that passion. Let's go, right? You love that energy. You plant churches with that kind of energy. But here's the warning, and here's the problem. This young in the faith zeal, which is good, can also so easily and so often lead to pride and to becoming puffed up 
and conceited. And that kind of pride and conceit is, is so destructive. And I want to be clear here. Being young is not the disqualification. Being young in the faith is. Let me repeat that again. Being chronologically young is not the disqualification. Being young in the faith is. In fact, I couldn't resist. I got to show you this. I know I'm getting ahead, but whatever. Here we go. This is Paul talking to young Timothy. Look at this. Let no one despise you of your youth, Timothy, young Timothy, young elder. But set the believers an example in, your, in speech and in conduct and love and faith and purity until I come. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have. But then listen to this, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. What does that mean? What this means is that it was godly men in Timothy's life, the elders around Timothy that says, we see this in you, and it's time. Timothy was sent out. He might have been young, but it wasn't his, his pride or youthful zeal that led him to this. It was the call of God through the people of God. Because here's the thing. Um, it is easy for zeal and passion for God's church and the kingdom of Jesus here in our community, all good, to subtly and dangerously slide into a passion and zeal for my church and my ministry and my kingdom and my name and my glory. What's the word for that? Pride. It's just as Peter reminds us, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Um, also with this, it, it, I want to be clear here. Paul is also not saying that more mature people no longer struggle with pride. If you've been following Jesus for a while and you're mature in your faith, you know that to be true. Um, it's not that you like suddenly, I outgrew it. I no longer struggle with pride. No, um, what Paul is saying though is that spiritual maturity helps push back this attack and make us less prone to being um, led astray by the enemy in this way. It's not that we outgrow pride, it's that as we grow, we become more aware of our own struggle with pride. And again, we become less prone to the attack of the enemy. And uh, by the way, let's call out the, the devil here. What is this enemy? Our text says the devil. And um, our text says, must not be a recent convert, says, or will become puffed up, conceited, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. What does that mean? The condemnation of the devil. By the way, we're going to see the same, or not same, but similar language in the next verse, in verse 7. What does it mean? There are really only two ways to really understand this statement. Um, two ways, two options. Number one, either this is the condemnation that the devil receives, or number two, it's the condemnation that the devil causes. And I, I want to bring this up because I think this is important as we wrap our minds around the warning of this text. Option number one is receives, that meaning that Paul is telling us that when a young leader falls into pride, he receives the same condemnation that the devil received in all of his pride. Option number one. Option number two is caused, meaning 
Paul is telling us that when a young leader falls into pride, he's falling into a trap of the devil leading to condemnation. Um, and that condemnation that is, 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 is happening is caused by the devil. Now, you might think this is with wordsmithing. It makes a big difference. Here's why. Um, I believe the most likely interpretation of this is option number two. And the main reason for this is just the gospel. Please hear me, church. For a new convert or old convert, the condemnation of the devil, the condemnation received by the devil was taken in full by Jesus Christ. All of it. The condemnation that the devil received was taken in Christ by, uh, at, at its fullness. So that scripture says there is therefore now no condemnation. The condemnation received by the devil that's leading to death, that condemnation fell on Jesus on the cross. He took it all so that we would not. So brother, sister, no matter how old you are chronologically or spiritually, and no matter how young you are, you do not live in fear of that condemnation because of the work of Jesus Christ, period, period. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And at the same time, the enemy loves to create strife. The enemy loves to create conflict and pain in the church. He loves bringing leaders down, setting traps, and causing that kind of condemnation in the church. Not the kind of condemnation that he received leading to hell and death, but the kind of condemnation that now he loves to unleash in the church, the kind of condemnation that harms the gospel witness. That's what we're talking about. That's what's in view here. Elders, pastors must not be recent converts. Why? Because that would expose them to some heavy attacks putting a target on their backs before they are ready, they would be prone to pride and conceit and fall into the con condemnation that the enemy causes. The enemy loves pride. And he loves using pride to harm his church, to harm Christ's church. Loves it. To harm the gospel witness in the church. And this is why he gives us this qualification. I promise I won't be this long with the other one. Here we go. Qualification number two, we, we see in verse seven. Moreover, it says, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. Okay, this deals directly with an elder's reputation in the community. An elder must be respected or well thought of, not just by those in the church, not just by those in here, but those out there in our community, even the unbelievers. Hear me, this does not mean unbelievers are going to agree with everything. That's not gonna happen. But for a potential elder, it does mean that even the unbelieving world around us should be able to see some of the very things we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. They should be able to see a man who's above reproach, faithful in his marriage, one woman man, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. They should be able to see that, both in and out. They should be able to see that this man's not a drunkard or violent, that he's gentle, and, and that he's not quarrelsome or a lover of money. They should be able to see that kind of character. They should be able to see it in a way that even though the unbelieving world does not believe in Christ, 
they can still see the Christ-like behavior and character of the man. This is what he's putting before. And, and hear me, if a man does not have that kind of respect out there, how can he have a credible gospel witness out there? In fact, um, this would cause an unbelieving community to then become unwilling to even listen. And this is what he's getting at. I want to give you an example. It's a completely made-up example, okay? Completely pulled it out of thin air. So, so just follow with me. I just want to put this before us to illustrate this. Imagine this with me, church. Imagine you have an unbelieving neighbor, and after months and months and months, maybe years, of prayer and asking, sharing the gospel, imagine that finally they decide okay, you've annoyed me enough. I will come with you to church. You've been praying the day would come. You've been praying they would hear, they would respond, and they finally, they come. Now imagine, after all of that, they walk in, and you see them stop dead in their tracks in disbelief and say, are you kidding me? Are you, you have got to be kidding me. He is an elder here? He is in leadership here? Are you kidding me? I work with him and that dude's a jerk. That dude's the biggest jerk I know and he's, he's leading here? That dude is violent and vile. Are you kidding me? All right, like I said, made up story. But in this made-up story, how many of you think that that person would be open to hear the gospel that morning as we gather around the word of God? Scripture says the gospel will absolutely be an offense to those who do not believe. We can expect that. But Scripture also reminds us as a church and as leaders in the church that we don't need to add to that offense by being jerks. This is why Paul says, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. So that why? So that he may not fall into disgrace. This is that disgrace, that reproach that outsiders bring when they see those who profess Christ dishonor Christ by their disobedience. Fall into disgrace, and Paul calls this fall a snare of the devil. We have our next devil. Let's, let's deal with this one. Um, just like in verse 6, remember, in verse 6, we saw the condemnation that the devil caused. Here in verse 7, we see the same thing. We have a snare that was caused or set out by the devil, by the enemy, to seek to hinder the gospel witness of the church in the community. A commentator says this really well. I'm going to put it up here and just read it. It's good. When church leaders live in such a way that unsaved outsiders refuse to listen to their message, the devil has clearly lured believers into a trap. Christians must realize that unbelievers may scrutinize their actions with a searchlight of fault-finding investigation. Ugh. Um, Paul's implied appeal is that the church is that church leaders give no opportunity for unbelievers genuinely to find fault. And then listen to this. Look at this imagery. In this verse, Paul uh, presented Satan as a hunter 
who lays out traps into which the careless, short-sighted Christians can fall. That is a vivid imagery, vivid imagery. So let's bring this together. Our first question, the question that we have been asking and answering over the last couple weeks is, who must an elder be? Paul has laid this out for us. An elder must aspire, aspiring to serve in this role is a good thing, a God-honoring, noble thing. So an elder must aspire to it, must be above reproach, husband of one wife, faithful to his wife, must be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. It's to understand scripture and to help others understand and apply scripture. Not be a drunkard, must be, not be violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. An elder must be a man who manages and stewards his house well because faithfulness as a steward in the home is a requirement for faithfulness as a leader in the church. And then as we saw today, an elder must not be a recent convert or young in the faith, spiritually immature. And an elder must be thought well of by outsiders, so respected in and out of the church so that the gospel would continue to go out in the community. This is who an elder must be. And this isn't an optional suggestion. Like, find some guys that are kind of like this. You know, nine out of 10, seven out of 10 is good. No, these are what God's word says an elder must be. And I'll say it again, being comes before doing. It's important to know what kind of man the elder must be. Notice it didn't say anything about business prowess or um, creativity, charismatic speaking. Didn't say anything that we sometimes equate. Didn't say that. It goes deeper than that. And this is who an elder must be. Now, I don't want to leave it there um, because I'm fully aware that we come from different backgrounds this morning and uh, different styles of churches that have different leadership, leadership structures. I totally understand that. Um, and I also understand, like, you can be honest with me, I know this. Most of us have probably given no thought whatsoever to how a church is led. Church leadership is not top of mind to most of us. And I get that. But here's the thing. Our text this morning is kind of challenging you to think about it. So, um, we understand who an elder must be. It's also important to understand together what we believe Scripture teaches about what elders must do. We're moving to our second question, what must an elder do? Um, I absolutely love the psalm that Craig read in communion this morning because the most predominant imagery that's used for pastor, elder, overseer is the image of shepherd. And uh, I'm gonna answer this question quickly, um, but we need to get this clear. Jesus is the chief shepherd. Jesus is the, she the chief shepherd, and elders scripturally are what we call under shepherds. Under the chief shepherd under shepherds. So Jesus is the lead shepherd in the church. Elders are under shepherds. And as shepherds, here is what elders scripturally must do in the church. Number one, elders protect the flock. They guard the flock. Um, we see this all throughout scripture, but one of the main jobs of a shepherd is to protect the sheep. 
from attacks, wolves, troubles, inside and out. Um, it's like Acts 20. Um, for, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. That's the same elders as we're dealing with in our text, by the way, in Ephesus. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or elders to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, listen to this, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. That's exactly what happened. He says, therefore, be alert. One of the most important responsibilities of an elder is to guard, to protect the church, to guard against false teaching. How about this one? To guard against all of the ways that culture wants to pull us away from this. To guard against that. Um, to guard against those who would attack the church for their own gain. Elders must guard, protect the sheep. Number two, elders must feed the flock. When Jesus uh, asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? Yes, good. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Teach the word, preach the word, live the word, provide the church through word and action, a steady diet of the word of God. Feed my sheep. Feed them. This is why one of the qualifications was the ability to teach. Why? It's because elders must be the ones responsible for providing the sheep with food. Titus 1.9 says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. You see both feeding and protection here. Feed the sheep. Feed the sheep. Um, this is the primary responsibility of an elder. Now, I know that no elder can force feed sheep. And I know that no elder can go, Make you hungry. I get it. I wish I could do that, by the way. That would be awesome. But I don't have that power. Um, the responsibility, though, of an elder is to live and know and teach this, to preach and teach the word of God so that those who are hungry can eat. It's the job. Let's not overcomplicate it. Like, elders, feed the flock. Feed the flock. Feed the sheep. Protect the flock. Feed the flock. Lastly, lead the flock. The call is, to, this is the call to govern, to manage, to lead as stewards. Um, the church has been entrusted with resources, with, with money, with things, with property, but please, most importantly, with people, with God's people. And he has called elders to steward and to manage these things for the glory of God, for the good of the church. And this is why we talked about last week how important it is that elders manage their home. Because if they don't do that, how can they do this? Elders need to lead the flock. And a part of leading, a part of that leadership is something um, that has often been called setting the pace. I love this, this image. What does that mean? Well, it means that when the congregation, when, when we ask, like, what does it look like to follow Jesus in this really weird and complicated culture? that we are facing right now? What does it look like to be a, a, a parent who follows Jesus to lead? What does it look like? Um, 
the flock should be able to look to elders and follow the shepherd's lead. Follow the shepherd's pace. Not that elders are perfect, but they should be pointing to Jesus in the way they live and lead their lives. They should be examples. As an elder, this is the most daunting task that I feel. I don't want to do anything that would harm the cause of Christ or anything that would create a roadblock or a barrier or a stumbling block to someone in Christ. Because the call of an elder is to point to Jesus and to set the pace for the congregation as we follow. So protect, uh, feed, and lead. That's what scripture calls elders to do. And this is the call, one more text here that I'm gonna put up here um, that Peter gives in 1 Peter 5. It says, so I exhort the elders among you um, as an elder, fellow witness of the sufferings of Jesus, of Christ, as well as partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He says, elders, shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful, shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but what? Being examples to the flock, leading the flock, setting the pace for the flock. And then listen to this because it brings us right back. Listen to this. And when the what? The chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In other words, elders are under shepherds under the rule and reign of the chief shepherds, and one day, as elders, if we are faithful in this call, there is a reward, and it goes right back to what we saw last week, that, that phrase that I long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what this is. That's what this is. This is what elders are called to do. This is what they're given by God to do um, and now, quickly, we get to turn to our last question. Here's the complicated thing about this text. This scripture was written to Timothy, a young elder pastor, written to elders, which can make it kind of difficult for us to walk through as a church. If you think about it, um, here's the awkward thing. This isn't a big elder meeting. I'm not at a pastor's conference right now. We are a church. We are a church. So I have to ask, like, what do we do? What does the church do with a text like this? What do we do with it? I'm glad you asked because that is the final question. What's next? Here we go. I want to give you a couple takeaways from this week and actually from the weeks prior as we put it all together. A few takeaways. Um, and the first one is this. Would you pray for your elders? I know that even putting this up here feels really self-indulgent to me, um, but I don't care because I need your prayer. We need your prayer. Uh, you want to hear something staggering? Uh, statistics tell us, this is from Barna, that in the past year, this is this calendar year, 42% of pastors have seriously considered quitting. Um, that's a staggering number and it just shows me how much your pastors, elders need your prayer. Here at Stone Bible Church, um, we are blessed with some godly, wise men. I love serving with these guys. And I can say this with integrity. We're in a really healthy place right now. And praise God for that. It's, it's wonderful. Um, and I, I'm, I'm grateful that God in his grace has led, me, led us here and with these guys. But here's the thing. 
I also know the weight that we wear as elders, even in the good seasons. And um, I, I, you can ask any of our other elders. I will speak for them because I think I can speak freely on this one. We need his wisdom. We need his strength. Would you commit to praying for the elders of your, of your church? If you're here and you're a visitor with us, um, glad you're here. We would love your prayer too, okay? Um, we'll gladly take that prayer. But I think it's even more vital that as you go to your home church, that right now the leaders, the elders, the pastors of your church come to your mind and you pray for them. Commit to, I will, I will let you not pray for us and pray for them. It's important, church, that we do this. Would you pray for your elders? So this is action step number one. Would you pray for your elders that they would be faithful in their calling and these qualifications and that they would serve in the church in these functions faithfully, that one day they would hear good, well done, good and faithful. Um, would you pray? Second thing here is we are actually going through this process right now as a church. And um, you have a part to play in this. So I'm just going to put this one up here boldly. Is God calling you to serve as an elder? Um, is God putting this on your heart? Do you think God's calling you to do this? Do you aspire to this? Because it's good to aspire to this. If you are aspiring or considering what God might be calling you to, whether it's pastoral ministry or being an elder, serving as an elder, um, let's grab lunch, coffee. It's on me. Would love to talk with you and pray with you about what God could be doing. If you don't come to us, chances are, Strong chance, we'll be coming to you, so just know that's coming. Um, but is God calling you to serve in this way? Question, last question, would you get involved in the process? Um, would you pray for our elders as we work through this process and pray for those potential elders for wisdom and for courage? Would you pray that God would close doors that need to be closed, open doors that need to be opened? Would you pray that God would give us wisdom on his timing? And eventually, as we put these guys in front of you, would you pray for them and support them? Would you, being informed by this text, by the word of God, would you affirm them? Listen, I know not everyone is an elder. Not everyone's called to be an elder. Not everyone aspires to be an elder, but some are. Some are. Some of you will serve our church this way. For all of the rest of us, we all have a part to play in this. As the church is the body of Christ, you have a part to play in this. Not just as a spectator who comes and gets your fix of truth on a weekend, but as a member of the body, gifted, called, participating, discerning, equipped for the ministry that God has given you, part of belonging in the church is knowing and supporting and affirming the men who would step into this role to serve as elders, under shepherds, to protect the flock, feed the flock, lead the flock as those who will give an account for the flock.